Okay, everyone, this is Keir from RugbyStrengthCoach.com. Welcome to episode number 13 of the podcast. Today's guest is the uh, owner-operator of Performance Training Center in Oregon. It's Mark McLaughlin. So, uh, Mark, just want to say thank you very much for uh, taking part in this episode. It's going to be really exciting, I think. My pleasure, Keir. Glad to be here. And uh, not to put any pressure on you, but to, uh, to give people some perspective listening to the podcast... Uh, a mutual friend of ours who unfortunately since passed on, um, Bob Islandfelt. He and I were um, we were talking via email a few years ago, and um, it was about a, a rugby kid from England who needed to come out to the states and do some training. And uh, I said, "Well, listen, I'll talk to Bob." And um, he he spoke to Bob, and I said, "Who did you uh, who did you send him to, Bob?" And he said, "I sent him to the best." And I said, "Really? Who's that?" He said, "Mark McLaughlin." So uh, no pressure. <laughs> I so, remember that phone conversation very well. Yeah. <laughs> so um, do you want to kind of give guys uh, a little bit of insight into, into what you're doing now and how, how you, you came to have that as a career and that job that you've got now? Yeah, so uh, probably like 20 years ago, um, I was reading in the local newspaper about some high school athletes that were track and field that were having catastrophic injuries. So this one cross-country runner had a broken femur in the final, like, 200 yards of her state meet. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's something that you get in, like, a car accident, not, you know, just running on a, on a grass field. Yeah. Um, and then another athlete who arguably is the best 400-meter runner to come out of the state but his freshman year, he had a torn hip flexor, and his sophomore, junior, and senior year, he had uh, just really bad hamstring issues to where he only ran in one state meet. Yeah. Uh, and then there was three girls from one school that had anemia. So I'm like, okay, there's a real issue here because these kids are doing you know non-contact sports, but they're having these bad injuries and. And illness issues. Um, so I said, okay, I'm going to do some research on how I can try to figure out ways to train them and allow them to reach the full potential, whatever that may be. And the ironic thing is this past weekend was a state meet again. And so the one kid who won the long jump had a sprained ankle that he's been bugging him for like the last month. Another girl had low irons, so she was complaining about, you know, her times there. So even after all this time, nothing's changed. Yeah. Um, so that's what really got me interested in trying to help these athletes, you know, succeed. And so I just became self-taught. So I would read, um, you know, like Louis Simmons and West and Fit. I started reading all that stuff, and then I started uh, doing research uh, on the great endurance countries like uh, Norway and Finland, and then started trying that stuff out on myself. Yeah. Um, and so then once I had success there, then I volunteered at the high school I went to, and so I was a strength coach for the football team for three years. And we had, um, you know, success not necessarily with wins and losses, but with injury reduction and strength and speed and all that. So at that point, I said, okay, I'm a job paying me money, which 
which was my first mistake. And, uh, and then I just invested a hundred percent of my time in starting off a performance training center. Yeah. And so were you uh, at this point, 20 years ago, are you an, an endurance athlete or an athlete who's just interested in, in looking at that kind of thing? Or were you a coach at that time? No, I wasn't a coach. So I, you know, I'd been in athletics my entire life and I was fortunate to play college, uh, basketball and baseball and after that I got into endurance sports so cycling and triathlons and I've run a couple marathons and so I'd always been involved in athletics yeah but I wasn't a coach uh you know I don't have a degree in coaching I'm not you know I don't have exercise physiology I'm not a PhD I'm just all self-taught I just had a you know a keen interest in performance because when we were growing up like sprained ankle was the worst thing I can remember myself or any athletes I played with happening. And now all of a sudden the trend for, you know, big time ACL injuries and, you know, elbow issues and, you know, I mean, kids between the ages of six and 18 in the U S that participate in sport, which I think there's 38 million, one out of 10 is annually. So that's what 0.8 million a year. Yeah, a lot of insurance payouts. Oh, yeah, and as they get older, like 15 to 18, the injuries become more severe. Um, so I was just dead set on trying to figure out a way to, um, you know, make them perform better. Yeah. Well, listen, let's, let's jump straight into that. Uh, what do you believe are the primary reasons that, that kids are getting hurt and, and what needs to change about the industry to, to fix that? I think the biggest thing is our youth athletes need to have the best coaches. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so obviously those coaches need to be, need to be paid the best, but the way that the system works in the U S at least it's all volunteers. So you have dads, uh, you know, parents, um, and they mean well, but they're just not educated. So you have these young athletes, who are the prime of their development and they're getting the worst coaching. Yeah. And so, you know, education is one. I think the competition schedule that these kids play is, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, you have 10, 12, 13-year-old girls or boys playing an NBA basketball season. Um, you have, you know, young athletes, you know, baseball they're playing 70 80 games a year at these young ages yeah. and money is and, and money is driving that yeah so they so they don't care about the development it's all about wins and losses yeah hey listen i uh, i stayed with a, a guy in boston about two weeks ago and uh, i this actually came up kind of early specialization and i was talking to this guy's mum whilst he was out and uh, she said when the boys were seven and eight years old, they were playing baseball. They used to throw so many pitches in a season that they would get, uh, is it like bursitis in their elbow? So for a seven and an eight year old kid, she had to fashion an ice pack in the shape of their elbow. It became that frequent. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that. Um, you know, guys getting dead arm at, you know, seventh or eighth grade. Um, you know bad knee tendonitis and, you know, nine, 10, 11 year olds. I mean, you know, injuries that are happening at that, at those young ages, 
is not leading to the right type of, you know, adaptations that these kids need for later on. Yeah. So, so I think, I think one, you have lack of education with the coaches. I think two, you have over competition at those young ages. And then lastly, there's real no assessment or development program that's going to lend these kids to progress, you know, through the system. Um, so, I mean, like I have, I think I have 10 athletes that have started with me from like junior high and gone all the way through to college. Um, and part of that is you need to have the parents understand that this is long-term, which a lot of them don't. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that seven, seven and eight year old that's, you know, having elbow issues. Common sense says there's something wrong there. Yeah. So if you get buy-in with the parents when the kids are young, so then it becomes a partnership between the athlete, the parent, and me, the coach, and they understand that really the goal is to get them to be start reaching their peak when they're juniors and seniors in high school, you know, then it's a, it's a very fun process. But when you get the dad who brings his game film in of his sixth grader, <laughs> You know, says he's the best, you know, seventh grade quarterback in the country, which that actually happened uh, to me. It's like, okay, man, what are we doing here? We're setting these kids up for failure already. Yeah, absolutely. How, how do you reconcile that against people? People may point to examples of, I don't know, for example, Chinese weightlifting, where the kids are under the bar at eight years of age and they're training all day, every day, and they produce gold medals. Do you think that's just... Uh, because of the population and uh, selection for the sport, more than more than it being a good system. Man, that's a that's a great question. I don't know, you know, too much about the Chinese weightlifting program. And obviously, if they're getting gold medals, you know, the system works. And I think the Bulgarians, when like you know the pocket Hercules was there, I think he started when he was like eleven. Yeah. Um, so you know, there. I think certain sports in certain countries. Um, that's just the way it is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to start them and it's the way that it's set up and it works for them. Yeah. I think when you're looking at team sports and then some of these other types of, um, uh, athletics in the U S I, I just think, uh, well, I mean, you go back to the injuries that I was talking about, something's wrong. Absolutely. Um, so when parents, you know, maybe bring up an example like a Tiger Woods or Serena Williams or something like that. It's like, okay, man, that's the exception. Those are the outliers that, for whatever reason, they made it through. Yeah. Um, like, like, the, like the CrossFit Sorry. Games. The one you see on TV is the one that didn't break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, like, when I talk to these parents and as I've – gotten older you kind of understand that we're we're in the job of selling so if we're working with athletes or parents or coaches it's all kind of how we put that message out there and so I'm always very upfront with them as okay if they tell me their expectations are to have Johnny be an NFL football player I need to be honest with them to say okay here's the likelihood of that happening yeah <laughs> 
which is what one um, percent if he if he even gets to a D one college. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's extremely small. Um, so you know, the expectations need to be tempered with reality, because then if they're not, then they want to know how come I'm not making them throw up after a workout, and you know, how come his forty isn't a four or five, and it's like, well, you know, I'm not a miracle worker on something, so yeah. You can't win the uh, the Kentucky Derby on a donkey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, what things do you do within Performance Training Center to try and work against that and, and properly prepare young athletes for their sport? Um, well, I think first is like educating the athlete on, okay, you know, do do an initial assessment with them both with Omega Wave and then also physical testing to say, okay, for your sport, and let's say it's soccer or American football, here are the parameters that we look at, and here's kind of where you stack up. And the goal was to try to move them towards that elite assessment over time, um, whether it be on resting heart rate or you know cardiac, vertical jump, long jump, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then let them know that it's a long-term process. And so not only is the training important, that's one aspect of it, but how you take care of yourself outside of training, how you sleep, how you manage your nutrition, how you handle stress, uh, understanding that, you know, four to eight weeks out of the year, sometimes you may not get the type of gains that you want, but it's all in this, you know, bigger process. And so I try to educate them. So when they leave me and they go to college, they can sustain themselves by sleeping well, eating right, and you know trying to recover properly. Um, and so it's a very holistic and I would say education-based and athlete you know first program. Yeah. And one thing that you've written about a lot is is the importance of the cardiac system, and also I've kind of I think I've seen you write before that you, you'll make guys wait a number of weeks sometimes when they come into your program before you say, actually, you know what, you're ready for this intensive stuff. Can can you talk a little bit about the the science behind that and the decisions that go into programming in that manner? Yeah. So I think first off. And I'll go back to a comment I made earlier on the assessment piece. So when all athletes come into our system, there's a series of assessments. So there's the omega wave, and again, it's it's HRV, it's the central nervous system, and then it's the metabolic systems. And that test is done at rest. Um, and then we do physical testing. So we'll do, you know, vertical jump, we'll do a 10-second jump test, um, you know, we'll do probably, you know, 10 and 20 and 30-yard sprints, and then we'll do some basic strength work. Um, and so that's, and then they, and then we do a very extensive medical uh, questionnaire with them. Yeah. So then based off of all that data, then that's how I begin to develop the program. And the one thing that we look at that's kind of based on the philosophy that we have on the development of the biological systems is to have a, a high functioning cardiac system. So within the Omega wave 
and the heart rate variability, it will tell us whether the athlete is more sympathetic dominant or parasympathetic dominant or, you know, is, is there a balance there? And then also kind of what their, and then also what their resting heart rate is. So then based off of that, we'll determine, okay, how much cardiac work do we need to have them do to begin to shift them more to the moderate parasympathetic side? Yeah. Um, and it's not, people get this sense that I have the guys running for five, six, seven, eight miles at a time, or they're on the elliptical all the time doing cardiac work. That's just not the case. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get that work in within a strength workout or within, you know, a speed or, you know, hill repeats or something like that because it's all based off of the heart rate. Yeah. So in, so in order to, like, stretch the heart and build the efficiency of it, like, heart rates need to be between, like, 100 to 120. Okay, so that's building the size of the chamber. And then to build the strength, which most team sport athletes need, you know, the heart rates uh, are between, like, 130 to 140, 150. Um, so is that the, the, the contractility of the left ventricle, that, that second zone? Yes. Okay, yep. cool. Yep. Um, and so, and there's actually... Uh, new technology out there. Well, I don't know if it's new, but I've just you know recently come about it, like the physio flow, where like you can actually see lifetime you know cardiac output. Um, wow! But but you know it's 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 fifteen thousand dollars, and you know is it really practical? Yeah. Uh, because you know prior, you know we're just making uh, I guess more educated guesses based on the data that we receive from uh, from the Omega Wave. But, you know, if we could actually see, like, in real time, like, what is this work actually doing to improve, you know, the car- the actual cardiac output of the athlete? Yeah. Um, so some things that we'll do within a, you know, a session to develop that, uh, we would do, like, you know, strength aerobic work, I guess, for lack of a better term you know, where they have a heart rate monitor on and they may do med- medicine ball circuits or they're doing, you know, barbells or dumbbells and they're keeping, you know, their heart rate within, say, a range of like 130 to 150. They may do a total of, say, like a half an hour to 40 minutes of that type of work. Yep. Sometimes sometimes they are on the elliptical. You know, sometimes they're, you know, jogging on the field doing, I wouldn't say tempo runs, but just doing, you know, back and forth work that's keeping their heart rate within that range um i mean i have one kid who started with me like four months ago he's six six like 290 um, big boy <laughs> yeah 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 and so we did a lot of that work his resting heart rate at the start was like 65 and the other day he's down to like 49 wow um but it but it wasn't on the elliptical for hours at a time. It was just getting him to do that general work. And it could be jumping circuits. I mean, I mean, that's the fun part of coaching is the art of it. Like, how are you using these principles within different modalities to get the type of adaptation you want? Yeah. How do you, how do you think 
Or what do you think that there's a potential pitfall or difficulty in combining methods? Because I had a conversation with somebody about this the other day, and we kind of talked about, you know, implementing low-level plyometrics with aerobic work and strength aerobic work. And one of the things that uh, I struggled with when I tried it was trying to uh, deliver as as focused a stimulus as possible in both modalities at the same time. So maybe if we were doing uh, plyometrics in an aerobic fashion as that fatigue would start to set in or uh, the technique would break down or we, we would lose a little bit of value from that. Do you think that it's it can be done combining things like that? Um, you know, I think with the, like with the younger athletes that I'm working with, you know, technically, obviously with the jumping, like when they begin to break down, then it's probably time to, you know, stop doing that type of work. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, moving into the weight room to do some, you know, general strength work. I mean, geez, man, I mean, some of the kids that I see, I mean, doing, you know, push-ups and you know, basic <laughs> yeah. chin-ups and stuff like that is is an issue. So I think at that level, combining that stuff is not a problem. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you get into higher level athletes, because with, so with like this one kid that I'm talking about, and we see it all, the, I mean, we may do this for like three or four months. And then when we measure their vertical jumps and all that throughout this, this, this process, the power and everything continues to go up. Yeah. Um, so it's not like they're getting slower or power is decreasing as their fitness go grows based on the parameters and the assessments that we use. All these other uh, assessments that we've done continue to improve along with it. Um, but again, if you have like a high-level rugby player that's in, a, in the pro ranks, yeah, I mean, is that work going to be beneficial? Yeah. Well, you know, I'd say... <laughs> People call uh, international rugby players elite athletes, and uh, you know, to be completely honest, I think I've got maybe one or two in the squad. You know, like an elite, elite athlete. The rest, I would just say, are professional sports people. Yeah, and it's it's always interesting with the way they perform their skill on the field when they get into the weight room or do the conditioning work or things like that. Maybe that's their limiting factor. Yeah. Is it so is it fair to, to say then that? You know, in, in the the young athletes that you're training, you're adopting more of a general training model, more to target the underlying uh, movements that they're going to need on the field and also the physiological adaptations, which are going to give them the best chances of success long term. And then as they get older, then you're going to start worrying about being more sport specific. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So trying to so trying to get as much out of Mother Nature as they you know as she gave them, um, and then once you exhaust that, you know then you can start adding, you know more external, you know stimulus, um, because I mean some of these guys don't have the capacity to almost make it through a warm up. Yeah. <laughs> Just because of the way that you know kids you know. Uh, are today with you know phones and computers and all that kind of stuff, and that's just the way it is. So trying to build their fitness up through as much general means as possible. So 
you know, A, you get the physiological benefit that you look for. B, you know, there's no compromise, you know, with the tissues because you're not overloading them. You know, some of these kids play other sports or lift at their school during this time, so I have to be conscious of that in the way that I, um, you know, program it when they're with me. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot that kind of goes into it, but then, but then at the end of the day, it's all pretty basic. Yeah. With those kids that are doing other sports or they're lifting at school, do you get much fight back from the, the sport or school coaches? And do you, if that does happen, are you actually going to dedicate some of your time into making sure that the kids are, are capable of tolerating training rather than training them for their sport? Yeah, so we kind of call it survival yeah. training. Um, and, that's a, and that's a great question. So what, what I try to do is... I don't fight with the coaches anymore. I used to do that at the beginning, and then it, it just becomes a lot more stressful on myself and the, and the athlete. And So we're not doing anybody any good. So I let them do what they do at the school. I also let them know that if they you know, can get by with doing the least amount uh, that they can, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not going to jeopardize their grade in the, in the class to do so. Um, and it always seems like these high schools around here are driven by the Olympic lifting. Yeah, same. Again, yeah, and I'm not against Olympic lifting. Um, it's just that these kids can't do it right. They're not taught right. Um, and so, you know, they, they get shoulder issues. I mean, just a lot of bad things happen. So, but, and then also they don't... <laughs> They don't get any power increases by doing them. Um, so, so I just try to do, you know, the basics with them when they're with me, and then I give them homework. So if they're only with me twice a week, I'll give them like aerobic work to do on their own. I may give some, them some other strength work, and it's all kind of based around that initial assessment that I did with them, you know, a month or two or three months ago. Yeah. Well. Let's imagine that I'm a, a youth athlete coming into to PTC. Can you can you give us a breakdown of what the typical training week's going to look like? Yeah, so uh, let's see. So I'll take an example I have with uh, – he's a sophomore. He's playing baseball right now. He's with me two days a week, um, and he's a skill guy on football, so he's a, he's a wide receiver, um, and he's still relatively young. So uh, – he comes in twice a week. I test him on the Omega Wave prior to every session. Um, and then he'll do like five to ten minutes on the elliptical. Uh, and then we'll go through uh, movement prep, uh, you know, warm-up that's like probably 20 to 25 minutes total. Yep. Um, and then if we're doing like acceleration work on that day, um, then we'll start, you know, say with, uh, you know, some 10 yard sprints, uh, we may do some twenties and then, you know, like really low level, like thirties, like one or two. So the total volume on that work, like the first day of the week, um, is going to be anywhere from like 110 to 160 with full recovery. And the furthest I would go with them would be 30 yards. Yeah. Um, and then, 
And then I always have a, a, a drop down sheet on the uh, on the sprint. So if, if they're not meeting within like ninety three to ninety five percent of their best times, then I'll cut them off. Um, so this morning we had a session with uh, with eight guys, and only three of them ended up making it through because the rest of them, for whatever reason, just weren't producing the type of speeds that they needed to today. Yeah. Um, so then after that, um, we may go do some, uh, some med ball work. Uh, so like one to two sets of some more explosive type med ball, um, whether it's, you know, for distance or for height. Um, and then with this kid on the, uh, uh, on the strength work, we would come in and do like strength aerobics. So he would do, um, say like two to three reps of a squat and he would do like some push-ups, and he would just go back and forth like that for like 10 minutes mm -hmm. with, with low weights, probably like 50%. Uh, then he does like, you know, five to 10 minutes of, um, elliptical work and he'll do that like two or three times. And then at the end, you know, he will do some, some core work and then he's done. Uh, so that session would take anywhere from like 90 to, uh, two hours, 90 minutes to two hours. And then, uh, the next day, depending on if he has practice or whatever, and kind of the access to different facilities, um, I would have him do like hill sprints. So like five, less than five seconds, um, with a 60 second recovery. And right now he's only doing like 15 to 20 of those. Yeah. Uh, and that's after a warm up of say like 30 minutes. So that, that session takes like 50 minutes total and then he's done. Uh, and then on, uh, the third day, he would do like a jump session. So just working on basic jumping. So he would do jump rope uh, for height. He'd do like 10 to 15 reps. Um, he'd do maybe like two to three sets of that. Uh, he would do some, some different bounding drills. So really low level, uh, like probably 300 foot contacts on that day. Yeah. And, th and then that's it for him on that day. Uh, and then uh, the fourth day of the week is a day off. And then the fifth day when he's back to see me, it's going to kind of depend on the accumulation of fatigue during the week, how he tests on the Omega wave. Um, so we may do some more technical work on, say, on the speed side and maybe have the more focus on power. So we may do some, some box jumps. Uh, we may do some, uh, you know, some other med ball work and then, um, the weight training is going to be probably about half the volume that we did on the day one. Um, and then, then he, and that session probably takes like an hour and then, uh, the next day would be like some tempo work, you know, so he has a heart rate monitor and he maybe do like 30 minutes, you know, between that 130 to 150. Uh, and then Sunday he's off and then started all over again. Awesome. So you, you mentioned Omega Wave there a couple of times. How did that relationship begin uh, between you and those guys? And can you talk a little bit about 
what you've learned from from using that technology and from their information and how you've changed what you've done over the years? Yeah, so when I was started thinking about opening my own facility, I, I felt that I needed some type of technology that was going to embody what I wanted to do with the athlete as far as protecting their health and well-being and allowing them to reach their full potential. Uh, and so I had read about the Omega Wave, and it always seemed like every time I was interested in something, it was always on the West, or it was always on the East Coast or overseas. And, you know, I, I never could talk to anybody. It was always, yeah, I think we had email back then, but it was very cumbersome. Well, lo and behold, Omega Wave was like in Eugene, Oregon, which is like 90 minutes from me. Yeah. So I got to go see Val Nasedkin, who um, was one of the uh, original founders of Omega Wave. And once I heard him talk about the system and explain it to me, within like 15 minutes, I knew that this is what I was looking for uh, because it was non-invasive, you know, in as little as, you know, seven minutes, you could have a snapshot of how the athlete looked uh, on the cardiac system, uh, HRV, and then central nervous system and metabolic system. Yeah. So right there, you know, you had all this data like instantaneous. Uh, then the other part of that conversation was when I was talking with Val is I understood that I didn't know anything about strength and conditioning because his knowledge just kind of blew me away. I was exactly the same. You know, <laughs> I saw him speak in 2012, went home, rewrote my degree. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it was unreal. And so when I invested in Omega Wave, I was investing in the technology, but then I was also investing in my education as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, hoping that I would you know, be able to learn more from him. And so at the beginning, when I got the system, I, I mean, I'll be completely honest, like I didn't know what the hell was going on. So I would, I would see these results that would, you know, tell us, you know, no high intensity, no high volume. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And, you know, what is heart rate variability and, and what's the sympathetic system? And so I was very, uneducated at the beginning and so it really forced me to learn about these different biological systems and just how important they were in the daily functioning for us you know not only as athletes but as humans yeah and holy crap man i mean the the learning curve was super steep and it probably took probably a year to two years to finally begin to kind of understand what was going on. Yeah. Um, Cause at the beginning I would just take it for what it's worth, but then I would still call Val and say, okay, can't we do this? And can't we do that? <laughs> and he would say, you know, just don't read anything into it. Just start collecting the data. And so that's what I did. The first couple of years we were just testing a lot of different athletes all the time. And then after we had a, a seminar with Val in 2007 at my facility. So, and that's when he talked about his training philosophy and then how it tied in with Omega Wave. And that was another one of those aha moments where 
man, all the lights went on. It's like, holy crap, this now makes a lot more sense than it did three or four years ago. Because now we have the biological systems, but then also how are we going to train them to get the type of adaptations that we need? Yeah. Um, so, so what, it's been 12 or 13 years since I've been using it. And some of the things that I've learned over the years is, man, and I mean, everybody writes about it, but the individualization of training, just how different people react to, you know, different types of stress. Um, you know, you think you have it nailed down and then something happens and it's like, okay, I can't think that I have it all solved because I don't. Um, and so it, it really, it really makes you stop and think about kind of what you're doing with the athlete as far as training and then trying to get a bigger perspective on kind of the outside influences that make them come to training ready or not ready. Yeah, it's funny. I had a, a conversation with uh, Dave Tenney about that, exactly the same thing. And uh, I think they had, they had an athlete had his first kid and when that happened, his readiness went in the toilet and so they had to think outside of the training box and they, they got this guy to, to set up a room in his house just for him and uh, sure enough, the readiness improved. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. must have been, um, that must have been really in the early days of Omega Wave if you've been with them for 12 years. Oh yeah, I mean, we had, I had all the cords going all over and it would take us you know longer to hook them up than the test actually took. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was right at the beginning and it was, I mean, it was a great time to have that technology. It was a great learning experience. Um, and then, you know, I, I've seen the progression, you know, with the technology on just how it's continued to improve. Um, and it, it helps me tell the story to the athletes. So when they come in, it's like, okay, you know, this is a science-based program and here are the different ways that we monitor it. And then for them, for their motivation, like then you can begin to show them over time the improvements. So we're not, you know, making this stuff up. It's like, okay, you know, your vertical jump when you started was 20 inches and here you are five years later and you're 36. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so then when parents come in that have new athletes, it's like, okay, here's our examples of the athletes that have come through here, and this is their improvement. Yeah, absolutely. Hard numbers. You can't argue with them. Yeah, and now now with the fact that they have the mobile units, so the athletes will test themselves in the morning, a lot of them. And so then I have, you know, the data first thing. And so when we get to training for that day, I know ahead of time, like kind of how we're going to try to adjust things on that given day. Yeah. So it it just makes it, uh, you know, a lot easier to manage it. Now on the subject of, uh, 20 to 36 inch vertical jumps, you, your, uh, videos that you put up, you put up some of the most impressive jumping videos that I've ever seen and I'm you know I always share them (laughs) can you talk a little bit about your system for getting guys to that point because there's some ridiculous numbers your guys put up yeah you know part of it is you gotta have good athletes right 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's so that's the first thing, uh, and then I think the the second thing, like I spoke about earlier, is really trying to, especially if we get them when they're younger, try to develop those uh, those qualities early on. So you know, doing like you know very easy low level jumping, you know, to the to begin to develop you know the ligaments and the tendons, um, and not you know overworking them. I think what's impressive to me and one of the things that I, so I watch a, a lot of YouTube videos and like uh, Carl Valley has posted a video of um, Warner Gunther. Yeah. I don't know. If you, oh, yeah, so, I've seen you know, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so you have this, you know, world record holder in the, in the shot put and he's doing some of the most basic jumping that you could ever see and he's a world-class athlete yeah and so i i look at him and i think okay we don't need to do anything fancy here we just need to begin to do the basics with the jumping then we need to progress the speed uh, and reactivity portion of it appropriately and then the power and the strength later on um so you know technically like you know, I'm a big proponent of teaching these kids how to bound right. Um, you know, so having, you know, making sure they have, you know, good, uh, you know, coordination skills. At the beginning, we used to do a ton of gymnastics, um, which, you know, forces them to have, you know, good awareness and everything like that, which, I mean, that's all sport is, right, is, is trying to, you know, get that space in between the defender. Absolutely, um, yeah. So, so teaching them the basics early on and then just progressing it appropriately. And then when it's appropriate, then begin to implement strength work and then appropriate power work with, you know, jump squats. So at the beginning, what we'll do is we'll teach the kids how to body weight jump squat. So just basic, you know, they'll do 10, 15, 20 reps, you know, they'll rest and they may do a hundred of those in a session, but you know, that's over multiple sessions, maybe over multiple months. And then when that's looking good and then their, their strength is appropriate. Okay. So then you begin to say, add, uh, you know, single leg squats with resistance, or if they've progressed, to, to squatting or deadlifting and then say within that, okay, now we're going to start doing kettlebell jump squats. So taking the volume down, but then now making with the light kettlebell, making sure that technically they're doing that right. They may do that for another four to six months or whatever. And then once technically they're there, okay, now we're going to put a, a bar on their back. So it, it's systematic in how they look to me. Yeah. Is, is everything fitting right within you know, the strength and the speed parameters. And, you know, uh, I think Charlie Francis said it best. If it looks right, it flies right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so not, so not trying to give, you know, not trying to force stuff on them. And I think that's what happens if we go back to earlier, like on the, you know, over competition, man, they're just trying to force this volume down these kids. And, I look at it in the weight room. It's like, man, if we can get away with, you know, 50, 60 good jumps, 
then okay, it's, it's done, and then we'll come back to, to fight another day. Um, and then as they get older, you know, then you can start putting in the fun stuff, so like hurdle hops and, you know, depth jumps, and then hurdle hops to box jumps, and I mean, the list is, you know, endless. And at that point, if they've gotten there, then the training effect is, at least as I've seen in my guys, is tremendous because we move them along at the appropriate pace. Yeah, not, nothing too intense too early. No. Yeah. I mean, we. I, I mean, what, 13 years I've been training in a private facility. I think at last count it was a total of like 700 athletes, and I've had two soft tissue injuries. Wow. You need a job in rugby. <laughs> and, you know, kind of getting back to Omega Wave, and I think some people have had this, you know, misconception that because uh, I use the Omega Wave that our guys don't train hard, and, and that's just not it. What it tells me is that, man, when these guys are ready to go hard, man, we go hard. But when they're not, then we just, you know, take it easy and allow them to recover and, and come back for those for those bigger days. But, you know, you see all this corrective exercise stuff and, you know, movement and all this. It's like, man, there's a lot of different ways that you can solve that that's going to have a bigger benefit to the athleticism of the athlete as opposed to making him into a patient. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think Buddy Morris said it as well. He said, you can do all the, the corrective exercise you want. The biggest cause of injury is the wrong stimulus at the wrong time in the wrong amount. Yeah. Because you, I, I see guys that, you know, we use the FMS just because it's a system and it helps us with, we have a lot of coaches all over the country. Um, but we'll see guys that will get like an 11 out of 21 on the FMS, which should ring alarm bells, and they play every single minute. And it's probably because they can handle the work better than the guy that, that can't. Yeah. Um, one thing that you've been a little bit critical about is when you when your guys do finish with you and they move on to a college or a professional environment, uh, is that those systems seem to, to manage their athletes poorly. What do you think is the reason for that? Um, I would say that, again, I think the number one thing is education. Uh, and again, I'm just you know talking about the the programs that I that my guys have gone to because there are some like excellent uh, NCAA and pro systems around. You know, uh, Eric uh, Corum at Kentucky does an outstanding job. Yeah, uh, University of Iowa and Landon Evans. I mean, those guys do. I'm Brian Mann at University of Missouri. I mean, there's some phenomenal people out there. But with the programs that my guys have gone to, I think, one, it's education of these coaches. They don't understand the demands of the game, which is always shocking to me. Yeah. So you have, you know, football plays that last four to seven seconds. And now with this no huddle, actually the strength and conditioning is changing within football because of the shorter rest periods. But they think that, it's a, you know, lactic, you know, glycolytic based. 300 sport. yard shuttles in, in training. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, I, I listened to a top D1 coach talk at a seminar last year, and they're talking about speed endurance for football players. And he's kind of going through his training for these guys. And it's like, okay, 
they're not watching the game at all. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, one is education. I think two is there's a lot of cool things out there right now on the data side. You know, there's GPS and, you know, ways to monitor athletes and all that. And it's like, okay, you guys can't even do your strength program, right? Yeah. You don't understand speed development, okay? You know, you, you're not giving them the appropriate rest. I mean, I mean, so there's things that you need to fix first on the basic side before any of this stuff is going to make a bit of difference. So you can spend 200000 on GPS. It's not going to fix the fact that your basic <laughs> strength and conditioning program is horrible. Yeah. Um, just a, a quick question for you, Mark. You've, you've kind of talked about programming in terms of the sport and position demands. Um, one kind of uh, philosophy that I've spoken to some coaches about, particularly in terms of the GPS data, is we have to prepare our, our athletes for the worst case scenario. And within the context of rugby, that is glycolytic uh, capacity stuff. Um, whereas the, the majority of what happens in our sport is, is alactic aerobic in nature. How do you balance those two opposing arguments? Because I, I, I tend to side with you about actually we have to try and prepare our athletes for what they're going to do most, most often. How do you prepare guys for that worst case scenario? Well, I mean, I would say in rugby, I mean, it is one of those sports where it kind of touches all three. Yeah, it's difficult. (laughs) Yeah, and then I would say that also like basketball as well. So the preparation for those two sports, there needs to be some of that work. Um, But as far as touching on like the worst case scenario for America, and I can only speak about American football, is that you just try to build those batteries of alactic capacity and power and then the aerobic side and then also the cardiac side. So kind of goes back to what I, what we look at is on the HRV is having like a moderate parasympathetic dominance. So with that, that athlete is going to recover better. Okay. So if we get these different biological systems to be to be able to handle the stress within training, then we're preparing them for the worst case scenario because they are going to have to handle a certain amount of stress. Um, So just building them, I don't even like the word resilient, anti-fragile. I mean, just building them up as big and robust as we can. Yeah. And that's why they have to do the work. That's why when you get all this corrective exercise and all this, standing around and doing all this stuff it's like you are doing your athletes a disservice because you're not getting them fit yeah (laughs) you're not and so they're not going to be able to withstand anything so then they break down um so and um so i think that you know that's what you need to do and then you try to manage them teach them how to manage themselves in season because I don't do anything in season with guys most of my stuff is preparation for the season yeah that's why I don't like to use like a lot of recovery modalities within training with them because man try to save that 
for when they're going to need it when actually plumbing. And presumably, you're um, going to you're going to blunt adaptation by by relying on those, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we have I have some guys that just came back from college, and they're you know they're a little bit sore over the last you know training that we've done in the last couple of days because their programs. I don't know what the hell was going on, but they didn't get them fit. But it's like, hey man, you guys aren't. You're not going to take ice baths. You're not going to take, you know, ibuprofen or anything like that. We're just going to have to try to, you know, work through the soreness in a natural way. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, I think, you know, some colleges, I think they do a poor job in assessing, um, I guess what I would call sports-specific assessments, not just physiologically, but even, you know, physically. You know, so I mean, so they're having to max out on power cleans and everything. It's like that makes no sense to me. How about doing like a sports-specific endurance test? Because it's all about repeatability, and it's all about repeating it at the highest speed that you can without fatigue. So trying to figure out some different monitoring ways to get more specificity to the endurance component. So they can use that strength and speed that you're trying to develop with them over the game time. Yeah. Well, you know, if it was that applicable, the best Olympic lifters should be the best athletes on the field. Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, which absolutely. is not the case. No. No, it's not. Mark, one of the things that you've um, that you've been writing about a little bit uh, recently is is Moxie, this new technology that you've been using. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know you, you might want to keep a little bit of uh, your cards close to your chest, but maybe give people an idea about what it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not even keeping it close to my chest. It's it's uh, So with Moxie right now, it feels like how when I first got Omega Wave back in like 03, so... It's new, I mean, it's not new technology. I think the near-infrared has been around for, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, but it's just becoming now affordable. Um, and Moxie is one of the, you know, players in that game right now, and it's a company out of Minneapolis. Um, and so I learned about the technology uh, from one of my colleagues in the NCAA, and then I went up and actually met a bike shop up in Seattle that has the technology that's been using it for like three years, uh, Harriet Sport Performance. And so, and I still ride my bike quite a bit. And so I had them do an assessment with me on, on the bike. Um, and it was after that assessment. And when, once I got the feedback where it's like, okay, this is, um, I think some technology that, need some more investigating and so um so i purchased it probably a month and a half ago and i'm just in the early stages of you know testing athletes with it you know understanding what the feedback is telling me how i'm going to use it um i mean i have a hard enough time right now trying to get uh the csv files to convert it to uh, excel <laughs> So, Kier, my limiting factor right now is Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> so, with with Moxie, it, is it right that you're you're looking at um, blood flow at the muscular level to try and understand what kind of adaptations you're creating within that tissue? Yeah, and so you know, it, it's measuring uh, a THB and then uh, SMO two. 
Um, so like when I did my test on, on the bike, it was interesting. My limiting factor was my respiratory system. Which is quite it's, rare if you look at the literature, right? Yeah, and when I, you know, it's like, okay, I never really looked into, you know, the breathing aspect, you know, of it. Um, and so that was, that just kind of blew me away. It's like I had all the fuel on board when you actually looked at the live feed, but I just couldn't utilize it because I could not get rid of the CO2. Yeah. So then I got, uh, I got the Power Breathe, I got the Power Breathe book, and I started, you know, reading and studying that. So then my next assessment was a lot better, but still my respiratory system was my limiting factor. And then I just did another test um, oh, probably two or three weeks ago, and it was my best test to date. Uh, and my respiratory system, I mean, you could just tell, just continues to get stronger and stronger. Um so, where, like I said earlier, with Omega Wave, you could make some some very good educated guesses on what needed to be worked on. And now, as we kind of peel back the layer again with Moxie, and once you begin to understand what it's telling you, I think now you're going to be able to fine-tune the training uh, based on live feedback, which... To date, there's just not much of it out there. That's awesome. Uh, so, so that's what I'm trying to do. So, trying to, so I've been fiddling around some. So, using uh, the free lap timing system for like repeat sprints, plus having the moxie on the athlete. So then, looking over the course of say 30 to 40 sprints, and then when I look at speed. Uh, increasing I guess and in, in that uh, verbiage so they're getting slower and then actually looking at the moxie feed to say okay what's causing that speed to degrade yeah so then when, when, once I see that and figure out what to do it's like okay then we can really hone in with that athlete like that's your limiting factor and this is what we're going to work on to improve that fantastic that's I think I'm going to have to do some reading this weekend so, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, man, it's challenging, especially when you don't, when you learn the way that I do, <laughs> slow, which is, which is slow. It's like, holy crap, man, this is like blowing my mind. Just open Pandora's box. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, let's finish up just with uh, one last question. If, if you were to give advice to a young coach coming into the profession now about who to learn from, who, who would you cite as some, some important people to learn from? Um, wow. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I would say, I would say number one, like try to just read basic, like exercise physiology to start with. Um, and kind of understand like like the cardiovascular system. Um, so I mean, any general you know work on that. I think looking at some of the the great coaches. So I think Hank Cranhoff uh, is a is a great example with with his knowledge of Omega Wave and then working with elite athletes and um, 
he's just been doing it for a long time and he's been extremely successful. Um, I know Landon Evans doesn't write a lot, but like when he's out speaking, like he's one of the guys, I mean, I told him the other day, I mean, if I could take a two year sabbatical and just hang out with him, that's what I would do. I would go to his classes. I would watch him code. I mean, and he actually started out working for you, correct? He didn't start out working for me, but he did. I, I was fortunate to have Landon with me for for a year, a little bit over a year. So super um, smart guy. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I mean, his skill set with nutrition, with with the strength, with the endurance, with the technology, it's really good. I, I think when like people like Brian Mann um, is a mall. Uh, God, I don't want to butcher his name, but. Uh, Malden. Oh, Malden. Yeah. 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 Um, and when he listens to this, I, I apologize for that. But uh, so those, so those guys, um, and then um, you know, just trying to think, uh, like when Val speaks, I think he's a great resource. He doesn't speak a lot, just because of his job commitments, but. Um, you know, he's, he's another one that has had a huge influence on how I look at training. And then, uh, Dr. Selyanov, um, I know a lot of his work now is getting out there more and more. So those are the, I mean, those are the main ones. And then sometimes I just look for obscure, like, like I said, man, YouTube. And I think watching some of the great athletes and how they talk about their coaches and, or great companies and just kind of how they got to where they are. I think for coaches, I think a lot can be learned from that because you have to learn how to tell the story. Um, so totally agree with you there about, um, you know, you, you mentioned the culture and the leadership side. I often think we can learn more from, from business than we can from, from certain team sports, just because in business, it's such a clear dividing line. Either you do better or you don't. And if you don't, you get fired. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think Formula One, just how focused they are on that one car or, or two cars and that one driver and all the systems that are in place and how precise they have to be. Yeah, I, I think there's a ton to look at as far as how they create that culture of um, high performance. It's it's unbelievable to me. Yeah. Well, um, where can people find you online, Mark? Uh, let's see. So www.resultsperiod1.com. And then I think Twitter is results underscore period. Um, and, then I'm, and then I'm on Facebook, just my personal page. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. That was uh, super educational. I have to be completely honest. That was... Uh, it was uh, for selfish reasons getting you on the podcast because I've, I've wanted to talk to you for so many years. <laughs> oh, man, my, my pleasure. I think one of the things that I've learned is like giving back in this profession because I remember calling coaches like Buddy Morris, for example, and some other guys, and they were more than happy to give their time. And so that's why I'm always – I try to be as gracious giving back as to those that uh, gave to me. So – My pleasure. Thank you so much.